Well, hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of First Peter. I don't know about you, but this, uh, this sermon series has been exciting for me. I, I really enjoyed being able to dig into God's Word as we look at uh, not, not just learning things that are, that are out here, not just learning things that help us grow. Okay, those are always good things. But looking at how do these things that help us grow, how do they actually help us live out our faith in the midst of the world and the culture that we're in? Because uh, you see, we're talking about that we are exiles and aliens. Because Peter is writing this book, Okay, he's writing this letter to Christians who are scattered throughout modern day Turkey and and they're going through times of of persecution and suffering and they're living in the midst of a culture uh, that is directly opposed to the life that God wants them to live. And you know what? We can probably look around and see how that's kind of true for us. Now, the the persecution and some of the suffering, I, I, I don't think we hit as much as what they had. Okay, But living amidst in a culture where that is not like us and is not pulling us away that God wants us to. I think that we, we, we know that and we feel that. And so the whole thing about Peter is how are we to live out our faith, to live out our hope in a world that's not our home? Because one of the main themes of this book is the world is watching. The world is watching how we live. Do you know that the world really wants to know what we believe? They do. Non-Christians want to know what we believe. They want to know why we believe them. And they want to know... Do we actually live out what we believe? And so in going through First Peter, we see more and more what is it like for us to be exiles and aliens in this world. And so uh, let's go ahead and read through our, our text for today. And, um, and then we will go through it again and we'll kind of unpack it just a little bit. So First Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 12. All right, if you can do the slides for a bit while my phone gets working again, then I'll take over when I can. There you go. All right, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they will be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectable behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and and wearing gold jewelry or putting on fine dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life and to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, because in your word, we encounter you. We encounter you in your love. We encounter you in your grace. 
We encounter you in your salvation. We encounter you in your justice. We see all of you. We see that you are a God who loves. You are a God who forgives sin, wickedness, and rebellion. And you are a God who punishes sin. And we see that in Jesus, we see the just punishment of sin poured out on him. And now the forgiveness and grace can be offered to us freely. We thank you for your word. God, as we get into your word today, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand what you have for us, Lord. We want to be your people who are living in this world, but not of it. We want to be witnesses, Lord. So give me words to speak and give us hearts that are open. In your name we pray, amen. So let's look at what is the flow of First Peter so far, okay? Be- because here's the thing. We can't just take a portion of Scripture out and only look at it. We've got to see how it's connected with the rest of the book. We've got to see how Scripture is connected to the whole canon of Scripture. Uh, whenever we encounter something uh, that we don't understand or we go, what does that mean? It's always good for us. Here's a principle. A lot of you know this. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay, so scripture over here helps us understand scripture over here. So I don't want us just to jump into 1 Peter chapter 3 that says in the same way, and we're like, what's that same way you're talking about, Peter? Okay, we've got to get the whole book. So here's the flow so far of 1 Peter. And again, this is a letter that Peter wrote to, to Christians that were scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. And here it is. He, he addresses it to those that are aliens and exiles. That's one of the themes. We're aliens and exiles in this world. This world is not our home. And we talked about that in the first week. We can embrace our alienship. It's okay that the world doesn't feel like home. It's okay that there's this dissonance here. How do you think the Jews felt when they were in Babylon for 70 years? There was dissonance there, and yet God also told them through the prophet Jeremiah, you're going to be there for 70 years. So build houses. Plant gardens. Let life continue. Give your kids in marriage. Let things continue on. Work for the good of the community, for the good of the city, because when the city is blessed, you will be blessed. They knew they were in exile. They were not home. They longed for to go back to Jerusalem, to the promised land, and yet they lived in the context that they had. So that's one of the main themes, that we are exiles and aliens. Now, suffering is the context. But when you read through this letter, you can't help but see that, that Peter is saying, look, Jesus suffered, and he suffered unjustly. And he suffered as an example for you. You're going to suffer in your Christian life. You may suffer persecution. You may suffer uh, being ostracized. You may suffer just simply because we live in a broken world. In this world, we will have what? What did Jesus say? Trials, tribulation, troubles, whatever word you want to use. In this world, you will have tribulations, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So suffering is their context. And the crux of this letter is Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's why Peter can write about the inheritance that's there. That's why he can write about the new identity that they they have. That's why he can write about how to be faithful in the midst of suffering, because Jesus rose from the dead. That changes everything. And this theme is going to show up throughout the letter. And so what are the things we've covered? We talked about we have this certain, imperishable, undefiled inheritance that's reserved for us. It's kept for us in heaven. Kind of like the idea if you're in line and you forget your wallet and you've got to go leave the line, you talk to the person behind you, hey, will you save my spot in line? Okay, will you reserve my spot? That's the same word. That's the meaning of it. 
our inheritance in heaven is reserved for us. For us who are, then it says, we're shielded by God's power in order to receive that inheritance. Being shielded by God's power does not mean that tragedies don't happen. It does not mean that suffering doesn't happen. Just read through the rest of the book of Peter. What it means is that in the midst of the world that we're in, in the midst of the hardships and tragedies that we face as Christians, we are protected in order to receive that inheritance because Jesus rose from the dead. This is the basis of our joy and our hope in the midst of suffering. Out of that, we have a new identity, right? Remember it said that they used to not be a people, but now they're the people of God. They used to not have received mercy, but now they've received mercy. And it says, look, you're now this royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people belonging to God so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into light. You see, almost every epistle we look at in the scriptures, there is, here's what Christ has done. Here's who that makes you into being. Here's the inheritance, the promise that you have. And now out of that, how then shall we live? How do we live out the calling we've received? And they're in the red, and that's not a very, I'll have to change that color next time because that red doesn't show up very well. To be a witness to the world. Because what we're going to see today, the world is watching and they're looking. Are we living out our faith? Does what we believe actually make a difference in our life? We say we believe this. How does it impact us? How does it impact us in the world? How does it impact them? And so that's what we're looking at today. So go ahead and turn uh, back to chapter 2, verse 9. Okay, I think it's working for me, Rich. We'll see. Chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. Okay, this is back from last week. It's important that we start here because this is the context for our text from chapter 3. Okay, the new identity. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Okay, in the green. We skip down to the next part of the green. This is our new identity. You were once not a people, but now you're the people of God. You hadn't received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Why is that? What does that new identity mean for us? The orange part in the middle. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We have a new identity that gives us a reason for why we live. Let's continue on here. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly desires which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So why is this a context for our text from chapter 3? Peter's saying you have a new identity. You have a new calling. You have a new calling to proclaim the excellencies of God who's rescued you out of darkness and into light. To be a witness to be a missionary. And it says that out of that new calling, I'm urging you to allow God's spirit to help you say no to the things of the world because guess what? The world is watching. So he says, keep your behavior excellent. May the manner of your life be good and winsome and excellent. Why? Because the Christians in the church was being slandered. And derided. And that hasn't changed, right? I mean, you can go Google people's opinion on the church and on Christianity, and people have a lot of nasty things to say. And here's what Peter is saying you don't correct them and change their thinking by being louder or more persuasive than them. 
okay? By writing your own thing on Facebook that negates what they're going to say, they do this and you lay the knockout punch on them because you have... No, that's not what he says, okay? Yes, we're called to defend our faith, to have an answer, but he says, how... What are you supposed to do? What brings God glory? You live out your faith in front of a watching world. They see there's something different about you, and they want to slander you, but they can't. It's like with Daniel. You know, the, the, the other leaders hated Daniel because he had all this responsibility and this privilege and this prestige, and the king loved him, and so they're like, we're going we're gonna to find his flaw. And then they, they couldn't find it. There's nothing. They couldn't slander him, so they made up a law. Hey, king, how about you make a law that nobody can pray to any god except for you, king, for the next month? Because they knew that Daniel was such a man of integrity that he wasn't going to let that law keep him from praying to God. And so that's what Peter is saying. Look, I want you to live your life in such a way that the world sees that you're different. And though they want to slander you, they can't. And they will glorify God on the day that Christ returns. And Lord willing, there will be so many people that glorify him before that because they've seen our witness, because they've heard the gospel come from our lips. But there will be many people that that's the first day that they acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And so Peter is saying how we live now is so important because um, the world is watching. Do you see there up here it says as they observe them? Okay, The world is watching how we're living. Let's continue on. In our, seri- uh, in our uh, sermon here. So, then the next verse, okay? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Just the first part of it. You have your new identity. You have your new calling. Here's why you're supposed to live that way. The world is watching. It's looking. This is a way to glorify God. And then he says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And that's where last week we talked about submitting to government. He was talking about slaves submitting to masters. These institutions that were there in the world that were part of their culture and the hierarchy and things like that. He says, look, how you live in regard to your government matters because the world is watching. How you live in regard to your boss matters because the world is watching. And then he's going to, that's chapter 2. He talks about how Jesus had suffered and then he gets to 1 Peter chapter 3. So that's the context of it. Now he's going to talk about how we live out our faith in the institution of marriage that was there in their culture. Because again, he's writing to first century Christians that are living in the Roman Empire in their culture. So let's go ahead uh, and look at that. Rich, can you put the next, the next one up? First Peter chapter 3. There we go. In the same way. Just like we're called to submit to the governing authorities, just like Peter has says we're called to submit uh, slaves to masters, so it's the same way we're talking about putting ourselves under the institutions that have been set up in their culture. That's what he's talking about. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Let's leave that up there just for a little bit. There's a couple things I want to talk about when I talk about submission. Sometimes these verses have been used to push women down. And when you read the whole scripture, that is, is the exact opposite of what Jesus and what God are doing in Christianity. Okay? It says be submissive to your own husband. We're talking about a marriage relationship. Okay? And it's not talking about women in relationship to every man there is, every Christian man. It's talking about in your marriage relationship. Because he's talking about the institutions, right? Right? human government, 
the human economy, and now he's talking about the family and marriage. And so I want to make sure that we understand that as we get into that. Now remember, we talk about submission. It's the idea of putting yourself under the rank of somebody else. That's, it's a military term. So he's saying, look, Christian women, as you live out your witness in the first century Roman culture and what marriage was and is, you put yourself under your husband. Because you know what? There were some early Christians that they became early Christian women. They became Christians. Their husbands didn't, which that was unheard of in the time. You were the same religion as your husband if you were a woman because you were like considered his property at that time. So, so some of them maybe in there like, well, I have this new freedom in Christ. I'm going to throw off this cultural institution of marriage and how that relates. And he says that is not how you live out a witness to your husband. Because how does he say the husband has the opportunity to be won over? He says, because he says, be submissive to your husbands, even to those that are disobedient to the word of God, even those that are not believers. And it says this, that they may be won without a word by the behavior of your wives. That word behavior is the same one from chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, let your behavior, let your lifestyle, your manner of life be excellent because the world is watching. And he says, as they observe your chaste or your pure behavior, as they reserve your reverence, okay, they may be one without a word. And it connects, I think, so explicitly to chapter 2, verse 12, where the command is given to all of us to let our behavior of life, our manner of life be excellent because the world is watching, they're observing. It's the same exact words. Wives. Christian wives of ungodly, non-Christian husbands, as you willingly submit to them in the ways that are not against God's will, and you live out your faith in front of them in your purity, in your reverence, in your respect, they're watching you, and they see that there's something different about you. And that's the way, Peter is saying, that God is able to change your husband's heart. You know, we've all probably been in a relationship sometime, friends or family, where you talk about things, you have different opinions or beliefs, and you can only talk so much, and then you kind of hit this wall. And talking isn't going to do any more good, right? We've all been there probably. Maybe you have a child that, that has walked away from the faith, and it's like you, you've talked about it, and you know if you bring up it again in words, it just builds a bigger wall. And so you prayerfully go, God, I want opportunities to keep sharing, but I'm definitely going to keep living. And that's what Peter is saying to the women there. Live out your faith in front of your husbands. Let them see that there's something different about you. Remember, we've been called to be free. That's what it said in the chapter before. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Yes, as a Christian woman, he says, you're free. That doesn't mean you're free to do whatever you want. Because there's this system of marriage that they had there in that time that if they chose to willingly live under it, they would be a witness to the world. Okay, that's what he's talking about. Let's keep unpacking this just a little bit. Let's look at verse 3. Your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. What is he talking about this? I think this is such a cool thing. In this time period, women were like the property of their dads until... There was an arranged marriage made, and then they were now the property of their husband. And so I want you to see the counterculturalness of this. 
Because we're going to get later how he lays it on husbands, what they're supposed to be doing. And this is what he says. He says, husbands, honor your wife as a co-heir of the grace of life. That's mind-blowing in this culture. Wait, my wife is not my property? She's a co-heir? I'm supposed to honor her? She, her and I are equal in the eyes of Christ with the inheritance we have. That was mind-blowing at that time. And so what he's saying here is, look, Christian ladies there in the first century, your worth and your beauty doesn't come from how you look. Your influence doesn't come from how you look. It comes from who God is making you to be on the inside. So he says, don't don't be so concerned about how you look on the outside. Don't don't have your beauty, your adornment, how how, how God is shaping you to be just about how you look and the things you wear and the jewelry that you have. But let it be the, the inside, the hidden part of the heart, the imperishable part of us. And he talks about a gentle and quiet spirit. And he uses the word, it's precious in the sight of God. It's costly. It's valuable. And I think he's directly putting up, there's the preciousness, the costliness of jewelry and fine clothes. And he's saying, but the gentle and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God. Now, what does gentle and quiet spirit mean, okay? Uh, It doesn't mean that a woman can't have a strong personality. That's not what it's talking about. It doesn't mean that a woman was supposed to be silent here, okay? Here's what those words mean, okay? That, That gentle, okay? The word for gentle is a word that we get for meek. It's the same word, it's the same root word that is in the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, of meekness or gentleness in the fruit of the Spirit that we're all called to have. Jesus, when he's riding on the donkey, says, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle or meek, riding on a donkey. Okay? That idea of gentle doesn't have to be what sometimes we would characterize as, as like a feminine gentleness. It's meekness, which meekness is not weakness. It is strength under control, under control. It's a fruit of the spirit that God wants to put inside of us. We are all called to be gentle and meek, to have the strength that God has given us, the freedom that God has given us, and have that be under control how God wants us to live. Okay, from, uh, from the Blue Letter Bible, which is a great um, online resource if you want to look at the Greek behind, this is what it says. Meekness toward God is the disposition of the Spirit in which we accept His dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. In the Old Testament, the meek are those who wholly rely on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. Gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, not the human will. It is a fruit of the Spirit that we are all, men and women, called to let God grow in us. Okay? So he's saying to the first century Christian women, in the midst of their marriage, to allow God to grow in them a meekness that is a strength under control. Now that next word, a quiet spirit. Okay, as we look at some of the Greek of that word, it has the idea of being like of sitting down. Now, now, what does that mean? Okay, because it it does have the aspect of 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 quiet or calmness or peace. Okay, because it's the idea of keeping one seat. Like how many of you ever like been sitting down sometime and somebody says or does something and you're like startled out of your chair? Okay, that it's like the opposite of that. Stuff can be flying all around. And you are quiet and calm. 
It also has the idea of being immovable, steadfast. Okay, you know the verse in the scripture that says, um, be steadfast, let nothing move you, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. This word is connected to that. So sometimes we look at this and we think gentle and quiet, okay? There are aspects of it. Meekness is strength under control. Quiet is the ability, the word behind there, to be able to be unmoved and undisturbed. We could look at it, okay? I, I think a great way to look at this, he's talking to Christian women that their spouses are not believing. You, you, you have your strength under control, and you are immovable in the good things, the godly things that God is calling you to be. I think that's a good way to look at it. Yes, it is this gentle and quiet spirit, meekness, strength under control, immovable in the good things of God with a submissive spirit. And he says, this is precious to God. This is better than fine jewelry to God. This is something that God honors. That's what Peter's talking to those first century Christians. All right, let's, let's keep looking at this. So he's shared a little bit about how they can live in the midst of this institution of marriage that's there. Um, and then he gives an example, okay, in verse 5. In this, former, in this way, the former times, holy women also who hoped in God, the hoping in God women from the Old Testament, they used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So he's saying, look, this is the example we see from the Old Testament of how the ladies would submit themselves to their husbands. And he says, look, you don't have, I don't want you to give in to fear. I want you to do what is right. Because here's the thing. Being submissive to a husband doesn't mean that you put up with abuse. That's not what he's talking about. Okay? It doesn't mean that the lady would be like, well, my, I'm being submissive to my husband even though he's not a Christian and I'm facing this abuse in this way. That, okay, this, this passage should not be used to tell a woman who's in that relationship where there's abuse going on that they just need to suck it up and submit and deal with it. That's, that's not what it's talking about as I read this, okay? I, I think passages like this can get twisted where, where ladies feel like trapped in this. And so he's saying, as you do what is right, I, I don't want you to be frightened by fear. Just some general things about submission before we get into what God says to the husbands. <clears throat> Guys, Okay, you listening? There is not a command in Scripture to make sure your wife is submitting. Okay, it's never given to men to say, hey, you're supposed to submit. You've got to listen to me. That's not there. In the different passages, it says, wives, submit to your husbands as under the Lord, or out of respect for the Lord, or as fear for the Lord. It's a command given to the wives, not for the husbands to enforce. Husbands... We are called to love our wife sacrificially, just like Jesus. And that's a challenge for us, right? I, when I was reading for this sermon, there was a young pastor, a young man that came to the pastor and said, I know what my problem is. I just love my wife too much. You know, thinking, he, you know, the, the pastor would be like, oh, well, that's okay. It's good to. And the guy said, do you love her just like Christ loved the church? And he said, uh, uh, no, I guess I don't love her that much. Well, then what are you doing? Go on and do that. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and look at the next verse. Here's something I want, I want to point out. Every time we see Peter or Paul or another writer talking about husband and wives, okay, what is normally given to the wife is what would already be expected in that culture. Okay? The wife had to submit to her husband if she was considered his property. 
Okay. Now there's more to it than that. There's the heart that goes behind it. But these passages about what the husband is supposed to be doing are countercultural. Because you wouldn't have to tell the husband what he's supposed to do because he can do whatever he wants. So I, I want you to see that. So he says, you husbands in the same way. Okay, what does that same way mean? We're called to be people who submit. Submit to the governing authorities, the slaves to their masters, the husbands to the wives. In the same submissive spirit as unto God, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she's a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. What does that mean? Let's just walk through it just a little bit. So he says, look, husbands, in the same way, with the same submissive spirit, I want you to live with your wives in an understanding way. That those words there literally mean dwell with her according to knowledge. You know what, guys? Generally, we don't always do a really good job of this. It's something we really have to work out. This is from a sermon I was reading this week by Pastor Stephen Cole. And he says, here's a couple ways to do that. Understand her. Like really work to understand who your wife is. What's going on in her heart and her mind, her dreams, her goals, her aspirations. Work to understand her. Pursue togetherness. Don't just let your work take you this way and this take you this way and let a wall build up between you. Work to pursue togetherness knowing her and knowing god's word and god's truth that's what it means to dwell with your wife in an understanding way in knowledge it's really interesting in scripture we see that it's men that are given the charge of building that growth and intimacy which often it's the ladies that are that are better at building that like uh, relational intimacy. Like sometimes it's just hard for us guys. Now maybe that's just generally speaking. I don't know. Maybe it's different for you. But he says, men, I want you to work at this. Get to know your wife. Love your wife. Know what's going on in her head and her heart. That's a challenge for us as guys, okay? And it says, in an understanding way as someone who is weaker, okay? As a weaker vessel is what it means. Now, now generally speaking, a woman and a man of like the same stature and things like that, the woman would be generally a little bit weaker. And I think especially back in, in the, the first century, okay, the women didn't have strength in the sense of uh, they, they were maybe treated as citizens, but they didn't have the right to vote. Uh, they didn't necessarily have the right of property. Uh, they couldn't just get a job somewhere to provide. And so he's saying, I want you to dwell with your wife in an understanding way, realizing who she is in this culture and to love her. Another way to look at it is a weaker vessel. We could look at it uh, as kind of something like, anybody ever have like a, a china cabinet or maybe your grandma or mom had a china cabinet where you have, these are the special vessels that we use at special times. We wash them specially. We treasure them, right? How many of you ever got in trouble because you, you maybe are washing one of the fine china and you put it in the regular cabinet? No, it doesn't go there. We treat it special. It goes in this place. It's unique. It's treasured. This little pot over there full of concrete, whatever. You can toss that, okay? You can throw it around. He's saying, look, cherish her. She's special. She's important. So live with her in an understanding way and cherish her. And then here's the thing, like I said before, so countercultural. Show her honor as a fellow heir. Paul said, look, as Christians, there's no Jew or Gentile. There's no the different nationalities. There's no male and female. 
Now, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden you become a Christian and you no longer become male or no longer become female. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying those differences, those things that want to separate us, that want to keep uh, people apart and animosity and and racial tension, he says that's gone at the cross. We are all co-heirs. And so he says, husbands, love your wife in an understanding way. Treasure her and value her and realize the honor that she deserves because she has the exact same inheritance that you have. And in a culture where women were devalued, this is huge. This is mind-blowing. This is Christianity raising up. That's what Peter is talking about. What are some of the ways that we can seek to honor our wives as a fellow heir of the grace of life and how we talk about her in our actions? in our respect, in our support, and helping your children to honor her. You see, Peter's main goal of this passage is that we would live as a witness in front of the world. A witness in how we relate to the governing authorities, a witness in how we relate to the slaves to their masters, and a witness in how man and wife, husband and wife, live and work together. That's the main part of this. And so he says, wives, submit to your husband. Husbands, love your wife, cherish her, dwell together with her. One of the famous passages on this is uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. And we want to skip ahead there. Actually, Ephesians chapter 4. Rich, can you skip ahead to the passage on Ephesians? Actually, go ahead and go forward a little bit. We're running late, late on time, I'll tell you. One more, I think. In Ephesians chapter 5, we get one of the more famous passages about husband and wife. And he says this. No, back one more. Be subject to one another the fear of Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence and respect for Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking in reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see that she respects her husband. So combining this with Peter, we are to be people that submit. That's what we learned about last week. There is a mutual submission. Submit to one another out of reverence and respect for Christ. The wife is to submit to the husband, and the husband is to be loving her sacrificially in the same way that Christ loved the church. Meaning, doing whatever he can to show his love and to do what's best for the wife. That's how it works together. And as 
Paul is going through this and he's talking about it and he says, this is a great mystery. And I'm speaking about Christ in the church. It's like he starts talking about marriage and then, and then it, he sees how it connects with Christ and the love for the church and he gets overwhelmed with worship. He's like, but I'm talking about Christ and his relationship for the church. And yes, husbands, love your wives and wife, respect your husband. There is a witness of and in marriage. How we live together is a witness to the world and it's a witness of Christ's love for his people. Because I, I want to end with this so our, our praise band can come on up. You see, in this passage, Paul's talking about marriage, but he becomes overwhelmed with how Christ showed his love for us. That Christ loved his people in a sacrificial way, that even in the garden where he is saying, God, if there is any other way, but not my will, your will be done. And so out of love for the bride of Christ, right, the church, Jesus willingly lays down his life to rescue you and me, to wash us clean by his blood. And husbands, that's how we're supposed to love our wives. That's a high calling. And we need to be praying for each other that we can do that, right? And wives, it says, as the church seeks to submit to the leading of Christ, that's what we see in Scripture. And how it should work is a husband is loving and listening and leading and they're working together. And that's how I, I read First Peter and I see here in Ephesians. And it all points to Christ's love for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity we have to live life right here in this country at this time. God, there's so many people that are watching us, waiting for us to mess up, wanting to jump on every word that we say. God, help us to live out our faith in front of this watching world. God, I, I pray that you will heal and restore marriages here and relationships. I pray that you will help us as, as guys to learn to love sacrificially and get to know our wives, to follow you. Lord, I pray that you will uh, grow in us a confidence to follow you. And I pray for the ladies here, Lord, that you will open their eyes to see the worth that they have because they're a daughter of you. And I pray that you will show them how they live out their meekness, their strength and their control, that immovability. God, we want to be your people that live out your word in front of a watching world. Will you help us? In your name we pray. Amen.